Look into Moxie's eyes. You are getting very, very sleepy. Very sleepy indeed. All right, so we're going to talk about hypnotism in the Bible. Um, here's the deal. Um, I don't know all that much about hypnosis, and so I'm not going to try to pretend I do. So the answer I'm going to give to the first question today is going to be a little bit... Um, cautious okay I, I just don't want to overreach my own understanding and give you guys information that's a little bit off base because of that so let me walk you through how i'm thinking about the issue of hypnosis then i'm going to go to your guys 20 questions today from the live stream because that's what we do on fridays here and um here is the first question and no i i don't have it ready okay there it is there it is i'm ready i'm ready i broke moxie's webcam like just i'm just like i tied it up with the wire just now because i busted it right before the stream the mount for it. Anyway, just being real. I either break things or spill coffee on them. This is how it works. Okay, so question number one. This is from Kayla Sweezy who asks, what does the Bible say about hypnosis as a form of medical treatment? I struggle with food addiction and I've heard that it can help by researching, uh, by reaching the subconscious. However, I want to be super careful not to dip into the supernatural demonic realm that can sometimes happen during yoga sessions when channeling your inner self and connecting with the universe. Um, so yeah, this is a great question. I, I can't say I'm qualified to fully answer it, but I'm, but here's the thing. When we want to think biblically about everything, which is the goal of this, this YouTube channel and my ministry, helping people think biblically about everything. <clears throat> and of course, primarily, getting them to become Christians, to see the truth and the goodness and the love and the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. Um, but when we want to think biblically about things, this means more than just like having the perfect answer. Sometimes it's about getting good at working through a process of thinking about something in a biblically minded fashion. So here are my thoughts. All right. Um, what is hypnosis? This is the first question we have to ask. What is hypnosis? Because there's like a whole bunch of versions of it and these are competing versions. And if how you answer this question changes the way you answer the issue. If you think that hypnosis is the pop version where people on stages sort of manipulate crowds to do crazy, funny things, um, that's gonna change your answer. I'm gonna generally be, generally be opposed to that sort of thing personally because I think it's manipulation. And even though it's for entertainment, just because something's for entertainment doesn't make it good. Um, yeah, that's, that's something our culture needs to remember. Um, but there's also like the idea that hypnosis just radically takes over control of you and you have no control over yourself. And I think that's generally not held amongst people who are serious about hypnosis. So I don't want to overreact to it. Um, some hypnosis has religious and spiritual connections to it. That's a serious issue. What are those connections? Are they legitimate? And Others look at hypnosis merely as a tool to help people achieve their own goals. And it's like sort of uh, guiding their own thoughts and assisting them in guiding their thoughts. And so it, it it's, it's complicated, all right? Like most things in life, it's a little complicated. So I don't want to overreact. There's two things I don't want to do. People overreact and they're like, hypnosis is demonic. Therefore, you can't do it. Run away. I think you have to prove that. You can't just say it. And I think that there's too many Christians, to be honest, you guys. Like I think there's too many Christians out there who take what they're suspicious of and they just call it demonic and they walk the other direction without thinking about the impact that has on people who may have non-demonic engage, engagement with some of those things. So, um, yeah, I also want to underreact. The other thing I don't want to do is underreact, which is to say, hey, man, you do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. And there's a lot of believers out there who have basically very low standards for anything because probably because they're, they're just kind of trying to be kind hearted, I think. 
right? They, they want to be approving and encouraging and they want to think the best of people. And this can make them a little gullible to doing and encouraging and endorsing practices that have real legitimate questions. So let's talk about it a little bit. The, um, the idea of hypnosis, the thing that connects every kind of hypnosis is the idea of suggestion. And I'm going to use a term here. Think of it as like mind surgery. Okay. I don't know if anybody else uses this term. My term for it is mind surgery, not brain surgery. Brain surgery affects your physical brain. Mind surgery, which impacts your thinking, your reasoning, the things you believe, the things you are um, desiring to do. So it's like mind surgery. Now, already that brings up a really significant issue, which is I wouldn't let anybody mess with my brain. Who will I let mess with my mind? That's what hypnosis is doing. It's, it's a mind surgery thing. So there's a, a, an incredible amount of trust on the person you're asking to help you through this process, even if you think it's legitimate, that's a big issue. Uh, some people use it to help quit smoking. Some people use it to overcome phobias, some to deal with grief. And there are problems with it though, well-known problems with hypnosis. For instance, false memories. Now I've seen this in some of the, um, some of the, in the Christian, uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, sozo, right? Sozo, which is a Greek word that means just save. But there's some who turn the sozo thing into kind of a hypnosis, Christian hypnosis type regression where you're supposed to discover these repressed memories. And one of the big dangers of hypnosis is that it can help you fabricate memories. And usually these are memories of trauma. And so there are some who go into hypnosis and they come out and now they're kind of hateful and bitter towards parents. They're, they're sort of remembering now life in a different way than it really happened. And it's, and it's usually in, it's usually, it seems to discover trauma. And so if, imagine if, if, if you raise a kid and years later, he goes to a hypnotist, then he comes back to you and he's like, boy, dad, you really messed me up. Mom, you really messed me up. And you're like, what are you talking about? Oh, I discovered these memories and hypnosis. This just shows the power of it, right? It's incredibly powerful mind surgery, at least in some instances and false memories are a well-acknowledged thing. Like the Mayo Clinic says, Hey, hypnosis, one of the dangers is false memories. Okay, if it's that powerful that it can create false memories for me, I'm probably just not going to do it. Like, that's just being real with you. Um, it can get you to believe lies then. And if you mix spirituality with it, like they do with this, some, of the, some, at least some of the sozo stuff that um, has been going around, <laughs> um, I, I, I would say stay away from it. Yeah. But if it's acceptable at all, then it would be under these conditions, in my opinion, right? It would be, you have right motives, you have right methods, <laughs> Right motives on your part and the person who's doing it. Right methods, whatever those are, try to find those out. Right suggestion, meaning that you're being guided in believing true things and right things. And limited influence so that it becomes help and assistance and not manipulation. How do you parse that out in real life? I don't, I don't know. But those would be the principles I would try to apply to whatever situation I was in. Right motives, right methods, right kinds of suggestion and limited influence. Scripture does sort of weigh in on this, okay? There's no Bible verse that says anything about hypnosis directly, not to my knowledge anyways. Um, but it does weigh in heavily on the idea of having a sober mind and having sort of control of your thoughts. That's a really big deal in Scripture. Over and over again, the principle of sober-mindedness. So this to me is why I say limited influence. If hypnosis is at all acceptable, it's only with limited influence because you never want to be, say, on stage acting like a drunken fool because that would be a violation of being sober-minded as a Christian. You never want to be so influenced by others that they could even potentially lead you to believe false things, lies, without you filtering and considering and working through these things. So becoming too suggestible is inherently problematic for someone who wants to be sober-minded. 
the, that's in countless scriptures that talk about that. Um, scripture also tells us to think on what, whatsoever things are true in Philippians. I think that scripture weighs in on this idea of hypnosis because even if encouraging words might help me, the question is, are they true? There's a danger with even kind encouragement that's actually misleading, you know, teaching me lies. So I, I don't want that personally. Um, there is such, there is to some degree, you know, if you really water down the idea of hypnosis, you're going to find it everywhere to some degree. But if you're watering it down that much, then you can't call that clinical hypnosis. <laughs> you can't call it a hypnotist whose job is to professionally make you suggestible. I think that's kind of a problem. So um, I'm not going to say it's always demonic. I don't think hypnosis inherently opens you up to evil things and demonic things. I think, though, that it opens you up to suggestibility. That's the purpose of it. That's the function of it. And that inherently has problems when it confronts being sober-minded. If you've received help from being hypnotized, good. I'm glad you have. But these concerns, at least that I have, I think they're valid either way. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say all hypnosis is wrong. I would say all hypnosis has a potential problem that's inherent when, you're, when your goal is to make people suggestible and to bend their will um, and their thinking and their behavior. That's inherently going to bring in a lot of potential problems. So there's there's question number one. I hope that uh, that helps you guys. Um, we'll go to question number two now. This one's coming from Bruce B. from Tennessee, who asks the following. Blood was sprinkled around the altar in the tabernacle and temple. Did the priests ever clean up all the blood splatter or just let it accumulate? I cannot find the answer in scripture. Thanks, Pastor Mike, for all you do. Um, that's a really interesting question, Bruce. Um, yeah, blood was sprinkled all the time. That was a regular practice. And, and you'd imagine if it was not clean for years that this would just pile up into a pretty grotesque situation. I can't say that um, that scripture answers this question directly, but there's an, there's an indirect hint in scripture, which is that the priests were tasked with not only the conducting of the sacrifices, but as you read, you'll see they were tasked with the upkeep of the tabernacle. The upkeep of the tabernacle, which inherently, I think it's implied, upkeep implies cleaning as well. And so, for instance, they're burning wood on the altar uh, all the time, all day long. They're burning wood on the altar, and this wood would pile up ash. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that says that they would take the ash and clear it away, but I think it's pretty obvious that they had to do this, or the ash would actually, you know, get to the point where it's it's impossible to be used. Plus, naturally, people people clean things, especially sacred and very important things. Um, so I think it's we're fair in assuming that the, ta the task of upkeep for the tabernacle includes cleaning and washing the tabernacle and making sure that everything's in good order and in good condition. Um, you know, they would clear out the old showbread and put in the new showbread, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, Bruce, th that would be my thought on this. Uh, lean on the idea that they, that they had upkeep. That's clear in scripture. And that seems to include cleaning. Yeah, so let's go to question number three. This is from Cross Bearer. Oh, I just realized I forgot to put our, our, our counter up. I can do this real quick. If you guys will just give me one moment. And I promise not to break anything this time. <laughs> All right, so here's our counter going up. Oh, I didn't even turn on my lights. Look, I have not done a video with you guys in like two weeks, a live one anyway. Look at that. Did you even notice that that was missing? Look at that. Oh, I'm such a terrible YouTuber. I'm so unprofessional and unorganized and I don't really care. All right. So that was question number two. Let's go to number three from Crossbearer1413 says in Acts chapter eight, 
How did they know when the Samaritans had and had not received the Holy Spirit? Pentecostals teach that it must have been tongues. Is there another explanation? So let's go to Acts chapter 8, and we'll look at the passage. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just added a tra an accidentally added a transition, so now you guys get to see it. Watch, you get to see it. Ooh, ooh, fancy, a really cheesy. It's like old Star Wars transition. All right, so we've got Acts chapter 8, and it says... Um, um, are you sure you wanted eight? Was that the right chapter that you're looking for? Let me see. You got to make sure you guys double check your questions because, you know, I like to go to the passages in, in mind and I don't have the entire Bible memorized yet. Next week, next week I'll have it all memorized. Um, let me see if I can find it. Um, could it be Acts 19? Mm, mm, maybe, I mean, it might be Acts 19, but, but that's not, that's not, we're, we're talking here in Ephesus. That's, that's a different location. So let's just read through here and see if maybe I'm missing something that's here. Um, probably I am, but there was a man named Simon, right? Simon, the magician. We read about him. He was a punk. <laughs> he is a punk. And uh, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them <clears throat> Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Okay, this is a separate issue. The important part probably for your question, I'm going to read it again, is, is just this part right here. Um, they hear the word of God, they get baptized, but the Holy Spirit has not fallen on them until the apostles show up. They lay hands on them, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. I'll notice a couple things here, um, it, it, at least off the cursory reading right right now. We're, we're not seeing tongues related to this, okay? And I think your question is, is related to tongues. So you asked in Acts chapter 8, how did they know when the Samaritans had, had, uh, had, had and had not received the Holy Spirit? Pentecostals teach it must have been tongues. Is there another explanation? Um, so what we don't have in scripture is a clear answer to my knowledge on this passage. Uh, maybe if I read more, I'd see something I just don't remember off the top of my head. Um, no, they pretty much, they pretty much leave <laughs> after that. Okay. I'm just skimming. They pretty much leave right after that happens. So there's nothing specific. It is true that in the book of Acts, tongues is often the evidence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, but not always. Do you catch that? Not always. The thing about tongues is that tongues is a spiritual gift. And so when someone speaks in tongues, especially Acts 2, known tongues to the people around them, this is strong evidence of the work of God in their lives. But tongues is not the only spiritual gift. And so we have also prophecy. And Paul talks about how prophecy is even better. What if they prophesied when the Holy Spirit came? What if when the Holy Spirit came, it was like Acts 2, where there were just actually physically visible uh, manifestations to demonstrate the Spirit was coming upon them? I say what if because I don't know the answer but that's a possible answer that's consistent with the context of Acts. So I'm going to give it a, I'm going to put it as a defeater to those who say it must have been tongues. You're forcing that on the text of scripture at that point. Perhaps it was just a spiritual awareness that they had and the disciples had. When, when the apostles lay hands on them, they go, wow, we can, we, we just are spiritually, we feel the Holy Spirit is coming upon them. They feel, and maybe there was no manifestation of a gift. I don't know. That's also a possibility. So yeah, there's, there's all sorts of possible answers there. I think that what Pentecostals sometimes do, 
is they want to use this as a proof text for tongues when it's not about tongues. It's about, uh, it's about apostles. <laughs> it's about the apostles. Um, the, okay, so he, let me tell you about a problem in the, in the first century and how Jesus solved the problem. Okay, the problem, and this is what I think is the background of Acts 8. The problem is that once Christianity goes out into the world, people have all their own random opinions about it, and they change it, and they alter it, and they come up with bad doctrines, and they call it Christian. I mean, we see it today, right? This is the thing I, 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 I guard my own heart and my own mind, test myself with scripture to make sure I'm not doing. Well, in the first century, it was even more chaotic because you have the Holy Spirit working wildly in people's lives, and you don't have a full, completed New Testament to hold people up to. So what you do have is the apostles. And so the way Jesus assures that people won't distort his message, twist and change the, the, the Christian teaching, is he puts it in the hands of the apostles. So that the Holy Spirit comes with the laying on, hands, on, the, on of the hands of the apostles. That way, those who just got saved, they know that the official messengers of the, of the truth of Christianity are the apostles that just laid hands on them. This guy, Simon, wanted to be able to do it. That would then make him the official. That was the whole Simon the magician guy. Him the official guy who could then tell people what Christianity really believes. Now, we see this late in the first century and into the second century and even into the third century. There And the fourth, I guess. The, um, the church recognized that it was not just any old Christianity that mattered. It was apostolic Christianity. This is why the New Testament was canonized or at least we acknowledged the the canon we didn't make it canon as the church we just acknowledged what god had done because we saw that the teachings of the new testament were from the apostles and the apostles were the official like makers of the the infallible faith of christianity or like the not the makers because they didn't make it but the official deliverer deliverers of it right jesus says that they will he will guide them the spirit will guide them in all the things that they teach so we have them um the Holy Spirit's limited to their hands initially, right? Laying out of their hands as a way of proving their apostolic authority, which then is carried to us through the word of God, through the New Testament apostolic letters and, and writings so that we will then stick to the text of scripture and not think that we can uh, do whatever we want with Christianity. So that's what I, th I think is going on in Acts chapter eight here. It's the apostles as the, as the guarantors of Christian doctrine it's not about tongues as the only evidence of salvation. Tongues never comes up in that passage. All right, Tara Carlson has a question. What is the light in Genesis 1-3? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what is the light in Genesis 1-3? And some say it, the light is a spiritual force. Jesus, stars, the Big Bang. I know it's not Jesus, but I'm getting a lot of feedback in, in a group without any really solid answers. One, three. Okay. Let's look at it together. <laughs> and I, I can't give you a solid answer because I'm not 100% sure. We'll just talk about it a bit and maybe it'll help. I keep using my Star Wars uh, transition. <laughs> um, so Genesis 1, 3. This is, the, this is the creation account. If anybody's not familiar with it, uh, this is where the, this, the six days of creation take place in Genesis 1. God, he creates the heavens and the earth, right? Here we have in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's kind of like, like, uh, Hebrew for the universe and the earth was without form and void and darkness is over the face of the deep. Okay. There's darkness. That's interesting. Cause that implies that there's like an actual physical darkness that was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. The reason why I point out verse two is because I think verse two gives us the context, right? Verse three answers verse two, there's darkness. And so God says, let there be light. 
This implies that the light is literal light, at least in the text. Now, there's a whole other debate on Genesis, whether you take these um, this passage as um, corresponding to literal literal six days that happened. Like if you were there, you would have seen it happening exactly like this. Or is it is there poetic things going on here? Is it... Um, Oh, there's, there's, there's several different theories, and I don't know what my honest opinion is about those issues. And and for the for the five people out there that are like, see, Mike, you're a coward. You won't stand. No, no, no. You're not listening. I don't know. And and uh, maybe you maybe you know, and I'm just I'm ignorant here. I'm just admitting my ignorance. Uh, one day I hope to resolve all my questions about Genesis, but um, I tr- absolutely trust it's the word of God. Don't doubt that one one second. But I do find it to be a challenging thing to interpret in every aspect. Much of it is clear, but some of the questions I don't know the answers to. And so God says, let there be light. And there was light. The implication here is that the light is just actual light. But then there's this. Um, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. Again, the context implies that this is actual physical light. Now, there is no sun yet in this creation story. So, what exactly is this? Now, some theorize, oh, well, this could have been God's actual glory shining. Like he says, let there be light. And he, and that pushes his glory or it reveals his glory in creations. So his glory is shining. And that could be localized so that there's actually light and dark. That is entirely possible. Is it what the text says? No. So you, so you're, is a theory that, that I don't know is substantiated by the text. Can God create simply light out of nothing? Like just light shining? Yes. Does that have to then be his glory? No, it doesn't have to be his glory that's causing that light. He could just be causing light. That's interesting. What does it mean that he separated the light from the darkness? Well, that seems to apply time and day and night and that night cycles, that sort of thing. And so um, I'm inclined to take light to just be light in this passage without a particular source. So I'm not going to assign a source. It's not sunlight for the sun is not there yet, at least I mean, if you take, I think it's John Walton's view. Uh, he's a scholar who does a lot of Old Testament stuff. I think it's John Walton's view. I could be wrong. Who says that the light here um, would have been actual sunlight, right? But it's 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 later on when it says God created the, the sun, it's speaking only of God assigning a function to the sun. I think that's Walton's view. Forgive me if I'm wrong on that. And so God's giving it a name and a function doesn't mean it wasn't previously there. I don't personally, I'm not convinced of that, but I'm not saying he's guaranteed wrong. Again, I have a lot of questions about these issues that I still don't have the answers to. When you have someone, however, who you mentioned um, that says it was Jesus. Um, okay, well, I, I mean, in John 1, we have a parallel passage that is about Jesus, right? Here's the difference. Here's the difference. Um, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So in the beginning, where, John, where Genesis 1 begins, Jesus is already present. He's with God. He is God. He's both of those things, because that's the doctrine of the Trinity. He's God, but God is also tripersonal. So he's with God and is God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And it goes on to talk about him being light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But here John is drawing a theological parallel to Genesis 1. It is not saying that Jesus is the light when, when God says, let there be light. And here's my reason for that. Um, I read the, read the texts. Clearly, darkness here is a metaphor in John 1. Seems more, more literal in Genesis 1. And, um, the, uh, and the light as well. 
the um, the reality is in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light as though light is coming into existence, right? There wasn't light, and then God says, let there be light. But in John 1, John's careful before he mentions Jesus being light, in him was life, and his, his life was the light of men, right? He's the light of the world, all that. Before he says that, he establishes in John 1, 1, that he's already existing with God, right? So he's not coming into existence like light being cast in, or, you know, called into existence by God. He already exists. So that's why we push back against the Jesus. There's a Jesus parallel with John 1, but it's it's a theological parallel, not a literal, that was Jesus when God says, let there be light. There's a theological thing there going on, I believe, but I wouldn't push it beyond that. Yeah, so um, th there's my thoughts on it. I hope it helps. And we have all 20 questions right now, you guys. We've received all 20. I've got them lined up. I'm going to work through them all. The next one is McBoo Blitzman. McBoo Blitzman, who says, should Christians apologize to everyone from their past? I had so much anxiety messaging people from high school about every lie or mean comment I could think of, even some they didn't remember. Um, McBoo Blissman, I think you definitely do not have to do this. And I'll give you my honest opinion here. Um, I don't think you have to do this. And, and let me let me try to support this with more than just my opinion, okay? Because my, my gut tells me, right, having been just a human being and lived for a while and then also being a pastor, my gut tells me, this is very unhealthy that you feel burdened to reach out to people to confess things they weren't even aware of from years ago, people you haven't even talked to. I think you you know you can you can gauge these things depending on the significance of the offense, their awareness of the offense, how much of that is still sitting with you or or perhaps sitting with them. And if the answer is really low on all those things, I don't think you have to reach out. Um there's um there's more, I guess, I guess, soft scriptural support I can offer for this in that I don't have any examples in scripture of that. You know, so the Bible's got a lot of life stories in it and a lot of examples of people's stories. But I don't have any sort of like example of somebody going one by one to every offense and every sin they've ever committed to go tell people about them and try to reconcile over those things, even informing them of things they weren't even aware of. I, I think that, that that example should be in scripture if I'm going to put that burden on Christians. I'll, I'll say something else too. There is the closest thing that comes to mind off the top of my head is Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a tax collector who uh, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to dine at your house, right? Uh, I'm going to eat at your place. And he goes and he's eating with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus makes a statement. Um, it, you know, if, if I've wronged anyone, uh, let me, I wonder if I can find the passage. Um, Luke 19. Okay, let's look at what Zacchaeus says, because he has in his, in, here's a great example of a guy for you, McBoo Blitzman, <laughs> who has in his past a bunch of people he's wronged, because tax collectors could defraud people, they could charge them over their tax rate, you know, like car salesmen, <laughs> and, and we're looking for a car right now, and I'm like, you're kidding me, <laughs> the website said this, but you just added, I'm leaving, so, um, so yeah, they could overcharge people, the tax collectors, and basically extort them, and he here is coming to repentance, the life, you know, Jesus is having an impact in his life. And how does he deal with this large number of people he's offended? Can he go to each of them? Can he even reach out? Can he go track them all down? Will that be the mission of his life now? Luke 19, 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down. He was up in a sycamore tree, which, okay, side effect or side point, side effect is he's in Jericho, right? And there's a guy named Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is a wee little man, as the song says. He's small in stature. So he climbs up onto a sycamore tree, and that sycamore tree, then, then there he, um, he 
tries to watch for Jesus and Jesus calls out to him. So these sycamore trees, this specific tree is in Jericho and it's not in other locations around Israel and, um, and at the time as well. And, and so it's not in other places. So this is like a, a small little piece of historical accuracy, right? That there's this kind of tree in that location, but not elsewhere. Not like say in Rome or things like that. Okay, side note. Because I know some of you out there are thinking like, oh, Rome made up Christianity to control people. And then, and then Rome tried to smash Christianity and couldn't, which is kind of ironic. Um, all right, so Zacchaeus stands up and he goes, um, he says the following. Um, and Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I, and, and, and then now that's something he's doing. He just wants to, he's very, he's a rich man probably from his work and he feels bad about it. And he's going to give half of his goods to the poor. But then he adds this. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now this is an open offer, Zacchaeus. Hey, if I've wronged anyone, um, here's my open offer. I, I, I will restore it fourfold. He's going to give them, if he took a hundred dollars from them, he's going to give them $400. But this now requires the people, I think, to go to him and say, hey, Zacchaeus, I was one of those that was wronged. And if you feel that you have so many people in your history that you've done this to, perhaps there's some sort of public announcement you can make. Hey, um, you go on your social media, um, you know, you post out wherever you can, wherever you're able to. And you just say, hey, here's my big statement. Like I've made, I've, I've sinned so many things, so many times I've hurt so many people and I'm so, so sorry about it. Um, I want to apologize to everybody, but I don't want to hound you and I don't want to bring up a bunch of stuff from the past. If, if I've hurt you, I want to make it right. Please send me a message. Please just 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 connect with me so that I can apologize to you personally. Otherwise, I don't want to burden and bother you. And I would encourage you with maybe doing that sort of thing if you have, feel like you have this big blanket thing. And then leave it up to others if they want to reach out. Because guess what? For a lot of people, you saying that is plenty. You saying that's enough. Oh, I'm really glad you're changing. I'm really glad you've, you've, you've said sorry. I'm glad you're repenting. I'm glad God's working in your life. And then that's enough and they're happy to move on. All right, Markian Harbich says, how would you respond to a pastor who says, I don't need to teach that a particular practice is sin. What dangers do you think there are if someone doesn't recognize certain sin? Um, I guess my, my answer to a pastor who says, I don't need to teach certain practices sin is, are people who are hearing you doing those practices? Right? Like, I don't need to teach you that stabbing your mother with a fork is a sin because I think it's so rare that I probably don't need to specifically point that one out. <laughs> so, but I can talk about the heart issues, you know, heart sin issues. I'll talk about that stuff. But let me give you an example that people often take, and it's, it's an example of, in homosexuality. Um, and when I say homosexuality, I do not mean a proclivity of same sex desire, I mean activities, physical activities of uh, engaging in uh, sexual behavior between. Uh, something other than a husband and wife. And um, and Jesus, he didn't speak on homosexuality at all. Paul did. And I think that here's a good example of maybe why. Jesus was coming to a Jewish culture and a Jewish community who had the Old Testament established. And they already knew what the Old Testament said about the topic. And the people and the culture are not thinking that it's okay. They all are pretty much on the same page culturally that, that homosexual sex acts are sinful. They're all on that same page. So that's not a problem. So Jesus doesn't bring it up because his audience doesn't need to hear it. He brings up things like the issues with 
their outward religious things. They're praying so men can hear them, them giving so people can see them. They're adding of human traditions onto the, onto the doctrines uh, of God and scripture. And, you know, he deals with the issues that are, they're going through. Then Paul comes around and Paul's reaching out to Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And in the Gentile world, there was a lot more sexual depravity openly and, in, and, and unashamedly than there was in the Jewish world at the time, culturally speaking. And so Paul, he lays out in detail the issues with homosexuality. Now, what I'm going to suggest is if your pastor is in a situation like Jesus where, hey, this issue is not an issue for my people. They're not going through it. It's not really a challenge. Then he doesn't need to teach on that problem. If he's like Paul and it's the issue they're dealing with and it is a challenge and he refuses to teach on it, he's abandoning a responsibility to teach people what they need to hear in, in their culture and in their time. What I'm saying is, <laughs> it gets me in trouble and it, and it, and it should. I, we should. Christians should probably get in some trouble. <laughs> um, when our culture is going crazy on a sin issue, we have to talk about it. That's exactly the issue we have to talk about because this is the thing that they're putting between them and God. And when we call for them to repent, we've got to talk about the issues they got to repent of. So we have homosexuality, but it's way bigger than that, right? Some of you think, oh, well, you're just, you're heteronormative and blah, blah, blah. But no, no, no. I, I, I'm going to offend more of you, okay? Sexual intimacy outside of man-woman marriage is sinful and our culture doesn't care and doesn't get it. The rates of cohabitation even amongst Christians, they absolutely need to repent. Their pastors have to teach about these issues. We've got to confront this stuff. The celebration of pride in our culture, arrogant, selfish pride, the complete disregard for issues like gluttony, gossip, selfishness. These are all issues our culture is facing and dealing with the big time and pastors. You got to you got to talk to your people about it um, if you're going to serve them well. Let's go to question number seven, which is the VIP. Does John 5.29 or the parable of the sheeps and goats mean that Jesus taught we need works to be saved? It seems to align with the mid-Acts dispensational view. Thank you. Um, I don't think I'm going to comment on the mid-Acts dispensational view. I'm not, I don't think I'm ready off the top of my head to do that. So let me just look at John 5.29 with you guys. Okay, it says, um, Jesus, well, I'll, I'll back up and read more. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority. I love this. I think it's important theology. <laughs> he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's a strong works related thing, isn't it? I mean, and, and it's when I say, I, I'm trying to choose my words carefully. I say works related because it's related. It's an issue related to works. Um, the parable of the goat and sheep, it's the same. It's a similar type of thing where the difference between the sheep and the goats is the way they treated people. There's a claim, hey, you're your Lord, Jesus, you're our Lord, but they didn't live it out. Now, the the problem, I think, is when we take these topics and we try to use them to answer the question of how one obtains salvation. Because <clears throat> let me let me uh, <clears throat> grab two sides here, Roman Catholic, say, and Protestant, my own view within Protestantism, not every Protestant agrees on everything. Not every Roman Catholic agrees on things, um, but... Roman Catholic view is your works are part of what achieves salvation. 
Um, whereas, say, at least my own understanding of the Protestant view, and I think scripture, is that your works flow from your salvation, but they definitely flow. Like they're, they're in a, a guaranteed result. If you get saved and you don't die, works come out of your life. And this is because I think God is working in me to work and do according to his good pleasure. It doesn't mean I'm sinless. I still sin. But the fruit of the Spirit is, that, is exactly that. If the Spirit's in you, there's fruit from the Spirit. I do believe this. So I could say, just with Jesus here, those who do good will be raised to the resurrection of life. But why are they doing good? Because they were born again and the fruit of the Spirit was working in their lives. The passages we read don't strictly comment on how their salvation is achieved. They do talk about some of the indicators of whether someone's really saved. And so what I'm suggesting here is not that this, these, these passages you just mentioned, those two, uh, prove my doctrine's right, say Roman Catholic doctrine's wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they're equally explainable on either system, right? Whichever side you, 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 you side on, they're equally explainable because the Protestant side says works follow salvation, meaning you're going to, to demonstrate your, your faith through works. And the Roman, say Roman Catholic side, who I've chosen to demonstrate that view, would say, hey, those works achieve your final salvation. They help achieve it, right? A, a com you know, combined in a complex and confusing way, built on the works of Christ. They're purely his grace, but they're also your merits, which is, I think, incoherent, which is why I reject that view. Um, all right. So, yeah, what I'm suggesting is um, if we want to know how you get justified initially in the, in the real theological sense, you should read Romans, you should read Galatians, because that's where the Bible is actually talking about those issues. Here it could just be evidence of salvation, Jesus warning people against um, uh, pretending to be in the light when they're not. All right, so uh, Jesse Crocus has a question. What does a relationship with God look like practically? Practically, what does it look like? Um, th th this is such a big question. Uh, I feel unqualified <laughs> to give you a full answer. I mean, I'll talk about it briefly, Jesse, and I hope you find it thoughtful and helpful. Um, a relationship with God like looks like, or I, let me start with what it is, right? What it is, is I trust in Christ. He is the mediator between God and man. When I put faith in him, genuine, genuine turning from sin to Christ, that's the inner attitude I have towards him, that then I am born again. I'm filled with the spirit. So I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me. So what does it look like when the spirit indwells you? Well, there's, there's, there just is a relationship. Um, so what, what might it ex externally look like? You pray um, as though you're in relationship with God, not as though he's just this far distant being who you're appealing to, to try to achieve something. It's, it's like, he's my heavenly father. Like Jesus says, when you pray, pray our father who art in heaven. Our father, this is a big deal because Jews didn't typically pray and call God father. Uh, individually, this wasn't a thing at the time, right? We're, but we're adopted. We have, the, we have the, the spirit crying out from within us, Abba, father, that, that he is our close um, relationship now. We also have it, it as intimate personal relationships. Does this mean I hear God's voice audibly? No, no, I don't know if I've ever heard God's voice audibly. I don't, not that I can think of. Um, but do I have the spirit leading and guiding me? Yeah, I think it does look that way. I think you're going to commit sin and the Holy Spirit brings away more awareness, greater awareness of the sin, perhaps lays things on your heart to do and to serve and to bless others, to love others. I know for me, example from marriage, um, you know, me and my wife will have a disagreement on something and then I, I pray. Okay. Here's a rule, right? Before I say anything else, I should pray. Okay. So I pray and I can't tell you how many times 
It's in that moment, as soon as I open my mouth to pray to the Lord, Lord, help me, and I'm frustrated and upset, that the Holy Spirit just immediately shows me my own issues and changes my attitude and then changes my marriage because I go back to my wife and I'm no longer just focused on her problems. I've dealt with the plank in my eye. I mean, that that happens through prayer all the time. My changed attitude, my changed awareness. So th that's kind of how it looks for me. Does it have to look that way for you? No. Every relationship can be a little different, you know? A parent's relationship with one sibling isn't the same as it is with another sibling, but there's a relationship that's there. So the change of your life, uh, the fruit of the spirit, living out this Christian life, your attitude towards sin, your attitude towards goodness, your desire to serve others, to forgive others, these things grow out of your relationship with God. Those are some of the things it looks like. And finally, I'll just say it adds uh, a relationship with people too. Like First John says, if you love the one who begot, you love those who are begotten by him, right? If you love your father in heaven, you're going to love his other children. And so you, your care for other believers grows naturally out of this relationship with God. Are you always like that? Well, no, because you still have the flesh, right? You have the spirit, but you also have the flesh and you have to pick between the two. So you need to lean on the spirit, but then it'll be lived out in that kind of relationship. If anyone's listening and you feel like you are lacking relationship with God, my encouragement to you is two things. You pray through Jesus for deeper relationship with God. Jesus, you're the mediator. I trust you. I want to know you more. I yield my heart, my life, my mind, my sinful attitude, the things I want to do that I know I shouldn't do. I give all that to you and I turn and I trust in you, your death, your resurrection, and I trust you to give me access to God through your grace. And number two, I'd ask you to do this. Don't go by your feelings so much because I'm in a real relationship with my wife and I can describe how that looks, but it doesn't always feel the way it is. And your relationship with God may not always feel the way it actually is. But if you go off your feelings, you will always be, you know, one, mo one moment you'll be super confident. You're so, I'm so saved, man. I'm so in love with God. Oh, and like a day later, you're like, is there even, is God even there? Is he even listening? And the thing is, you're not, you're believing your feelings. You're, you're looking at your feelings, your emotions to tell you what's true instead of looking at what's true to tell you how to feel. And that's a life lesson we all need to learn. <laughs> David Tagawa says, if the extent of Jesus's death was for all, but the application of his death was only for his sheep, why does Jesus say that he lays down his life for his sheep in John 10, 15? Verse 16 clarifies extent, right? Okay, this is about uh, the doctrine of limited atonement for those who, who you're maybe not fully on board with all this. The doctrine of limited atonement, the idea of, um, did Jesus die for everyone? Or did he die only for those who would actually end up believing, right, for the elect? Now, I think he died for everyone. And as you, as you stated in your question, that it's applied, the application of his death is only to those who believe. I think that's there. I've, I've got a couple videos on that in my playlist on Calvinism. And you guys can check that out. Um, uh, just type, you know, go to the search engine, type my name and Mike Winger and limited atonement and some, ver some stuff will pop up. Um, but let's look at John 10, 15. It says here, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So here's an example, I think, and maybe I'm wrong. And, and David, you're obviously an intelligent, thoughtful guy. Like I can tell by reading your question, you've thought about this. You carefully worded your question. Forgive me if I'm missing some element of what you're thinking here. It's not intentional. Um, but my impression is that what we're doing is we're reading limited atonement, limited atonement um, 
with by putting an artificial limit on what Jesus says. So, so the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. If you add the word only here, he lays down his life only for the sheep. That would be that would be more like limited atonement. Do you see the difference? He's laying his life down only for the sheep. But then he talks about how he has other sheep that are not of this fold. But then that would be an, an additional group of people who he's also laying his life down for. They're different sheep than the ones he's talking about here, it seems. I just think limited atonement's not in view here. It's just not. Jesus is saying he's, he's going to die for his sheep. It doesn't say he doesn't die for those who end up rejecting him. I think a better, more accurate passage is 1 John. Um, where it says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, Jesus, is not the prop- is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm convinced that this passage is an insurmountable challenge for limited atonement because here it is talking about who Jesus died for and while it says sheep in John earlier, here in First John, it says our sins and the sins of the whole world. Now, in, I'll get the video link for you guys, and I'll put it in the description after the live stream's over. But in my, in my thing on limited atonement, I labor on this passage. I go through, how does John use the phrase whole world? How, is, how are we supposed to understand this, this phrase world? Does he mean non-believers? Does he mean non-believers? Or does he only mean believers that are maybe outside the church currently? And I think I demonstrate, I mean, obviously I think I'm right. Okay, that's, everybody thinks they're right. You think you're right too, even right now. Whatever you're thinking about me thinking I'm right, you think you're right about it, don't you? So um, <laughs> I would like to put the video link there for you guys to consider and think about and let me try to demonstrate why I, why I hold this position that Jesus died for all. I'll put the link down below in the description as soon as the live stream is over. Um, yeah, all right, number 10. This is LA Gat Life. Or lag, lag at life. <laughs> lag at life says, why did demons always announce Jesus' true identity when they were in his presence? Wouldn't they rather lie and claim he was a false prophet or something to, to deceive others? Well, let me let me just answer it this way. I'm going to give, this might seem like a trite answer, but I want you to really imagine you are in, this, I know this is weird to say, that you're in the shoes of the demon, so to speak, for the hypothetical here. So, Jesus is teaching, and in the synagogue, there's a man who has the spirit of an unclean demon and cries out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, why didn't, they, why didn't the demon just lie? Why didn't the demon say, I know who you are, a created being? <laughs> like, why didn't he be like, I know who you are, just a man with no divine attributes at all? Why didn't they just say that? Because they, they could have accomplished in more of their goals. Well, Imagine lying about God when God's in front of you. And that's why they didn't. <laughs> it's one thing. It's, you know, people lie about me online. Okay. And this is not a woe is me moment. I don't care. I'm just making an illustration. Um, I'll see in comments who, well, Mike Winger believes this. Mike Winger believes that. I see this in comments, right? And it's weird because like, it's still strange to me that people are discussing what I believe about things. Um, people that I don't know. But but every once in a while, I'll be, I'll be in the comments and I'll be like, actually, no, I don't believe that. Um, I believe this. You know, I teach this, not that. Never have I had someone respond once I'm, I'm there and they know I'm present and they know I'm reading those comments. Never have I had them respond, yes, you do. 
you believe such and such because I'm there, you know, and who am I? You know, who am I? I'm just, I'm a nobody. Jesus is there in front of them. They know he's going to eventually destroy them and they're not going to lie about him to his face, right? They, they want distance from him. They want to get away. So I think that that's, I think they're just rightly intimidated um, and aren't going to lie about him right in front of him. Uh, let's go to number 11. Alice says, I've heard several teachings about prayer and I'm a bit confused. Are we to pray once, believe we have it and walk in faith? Or should we pray repeatedly until God gives us an answer? Well, Alice, there's, here's a good way to answer this question. You know, should I pray once, believe, believe I have it and just walk in faith? Or do I keep praying? Which means I'm not believing I've already got it, right? Because if you keep asking, you're not actually believing you've already received it. Um, to some extent, you're not. Um, I think what we can do is we can go to the examples of Jesus. And he taught us to pray continually, to pray without ceasing, to pray even for the same things over and over and over again. Um, he tells a parable of a, um, let me see if I can find the text really quick. Um, he tells a parable of, of the widow, right? You guys know the passage, probably. Uh, he, the parable of the widow is this widow who's going continually to an unjust judge. And the judge who's who needs to like fight for the cause of the widow, he won't help her. He won't help her with anything. It's, it's Luke 18. I'll just read it to us. Let's see if this helps you answer your question. Uh, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So there's a continu continuousness to our prayer that Jesus is wanting us to get. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. Why? Because he's a punk, right? But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now here, it's important we understand Jesus is not saying God is like this unjust judge. He, it's it's not a comparison. It's a contrast. There's a, right, remember in school, comparing contrast, these, these are two different things. It's not a comparison. It's a contrast. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We're supposed to be like the widow who just will not stop coming. Lord, please help us. Please, please stop the injustices in the world. Please stop the wickedness that's going on. Please return. And we keep crying out, but not like God's an unjust judge, but one who is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. So he's not delaying us because he's annoyed and we have to... Un uh, or delaying us because he doesn't care and he, we have to annoy him until he answers our question. The thing is, though, in this parable, the woman comes with the same prayer over and over and over again and Jesus says he wants you to pray always and not lose heart. My answer is, if you think Jesus' statement that if you, whatever you ask, believing you will receive it, if that means that you can't ask again because then you're not believing you've received it, then you must be misunderstanding Jesus because he actually wanted you to keep asking over and over for the same thing. So then there's some kind of, there's a misunderstanding. And, and what I think the misunderstanding is, Alice, is that you don't have to make yourself believe things. You wait on the Holy Spirit to show you that God is giving you that thing and then you believe you received it. That, that, that's a different thing. You're waiting on the instigation of the Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit hasn't given you that, 
you just keep seeking, you keep praying, you keep asking, you keep doing that. And there's, that's not an, a, a lack of faith. It's an act of faith. So I do have a video. I mean, I highly recommend you watch Alice and it's on, I think the, sub, the, um, the thumbnail says, how correct is Kenneth Copeland? <laughs> and, and the title is, um, uh, something about, uh, like evaluating the most like the best name it and claim it verse, something like that. I'll put it in the video description as well. If you'll just wait for about 10 minutes after the stream is over, I will put that there as well with, with along with the other one on limited atonement. I highly recommend you guys check it out if you have this dilemma on prayer and belief. Number 12, Yup has a question, says, I turned away 14 years ago, but got saved this summer. My best friend has since made many bad remarks about me and God. I only hear from him if he needs something. Do I cut him off or show him love? show him love like <laughs> i mean uh, okay here's here's like sort of a a checklist that i go through um for this kind of thing uh I, I know i'm to turn the other cheek and i'm to continually outreach to people but there is a warning from jesus on the other side that you don't want to cast your pearls before swine uh lest they turn and trample you to, and tear you to pieces and the idea with this the swine is twofold i think in that jewish context one they're unclean animals so we're talking about people that have rejected the gospel and uh, you, you're calling them swine. Well, look, they're unsaved. This is a, a fair parallel. Um, and two, uh, pigs can't tell the difference between pearls and rocks. They don't care about them. You throw them pearls, pigs think you're attacking them and they turn and attack you. Isn't that interesting? You ever think about the, this, this parable that way? When you throw pearls to pigs, they think you're attacking them they may turn to bite you and attack you, tear you to pieces. When you're trying to give the gospel to people and they repeatedly reject it and they turn their hearts from it, there comes a time where you just say, okay, I'll just leave you alone for now. And maybe you wait for an open door. You wait for that time when they're not going to see it as you throwing pearls at them. It's okay in that sense to shake your dust off and give them some space. So if they're turning towards rage and anger, it's okay to say, all right, I'm going to others. I have others to share with. I'll share with them. Um, also, the other checklist is, is my relationship with them causing me compromise in my walk with God? That's a big deal. So, yep, since that's your YouTube name, yep. Um, if, if your relationship with this best friend is causing you to compromise in your walk, well, then your loyalty to God requires you, for your own weaknesses' sake, to create some separation there. It's grievous. You don't want it. I don't, I, I don't think it's a, health, a great thing, but your spiritually, spirituality is more important than, than friendship. And... Um, and, and finally, I'd ask, is, is my relationship with them hurting others? Perhaps because I'm bringing them over to my house and he's influencing my little brother and that he's messing him up spiritually. Okay, well, then you have another thing to ask there. Otherwise, okay, if, if he's not turning to turn me to pieces, if he's not harming my walk, if he's not hurting others in this relationship, then I think um, continue to reach out to them, continue to pray with them, continue to talk to them, pray for them, you know, and see what happens there. All right, number 13, James Raphael says, the original definers of the word Christian were the enemies of Jesus' followers. What authorizes us today to define who is and who isn't a Christian, especially if we don't know what their OG criteria was? OG. <laughs> we don't know what their original gangster criteria for Christianity really was. All right, James Raphael, um, uh, Christian is, is, is just the name that they were called. This is an act. Uh, in Acts, they were they were first called Christians in Antioch. Um, let me see if I can find this spot real quick for you. Well, you guys probably know the passage. Uh, I think it's Acts 13. 
but in Antioch, they're first called Christians, Christianos, which is like little, little, little Christians or little, basically what we are is we're those who follow Christ. Um, to the non-Jewish people in Antioch, especially, they're basically calling us messianics or people who believe in the Messiah, right? But, but they don't have this in their non-Jewish culture. They don't really have a term for Messiah, or at least not really a concept like the Jews do. They would just call them messianic Jews. I mean, and every Jew should be messianic. <laughs> That's kind of the point. Um, every Jew should be following Jesus. He's the Messiah. So the name that was assigned to them was, was Christian. Um, it's noted in Acts for two reasons. One, because it was it was originally assigned to them. It was a name they were called. But two, because it did become the dominant name and they accepted it. Luke accepted it too. That's why he bothers to note. And that's where they first started calling us Christians. right? And then we take the name. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're followers of Christ. Why not name ourselves after our Savior? right? We, you could call us Jesusins, Jesusians. It doesn't really flow off the tongue very well, but I'd be fine with that if it works. You could call us followers of the way, but that's also rather vague, right? That was another term that was used. Christian, I I think, is a more useful term because it narrows things down. We're about Jesus, man. We're about Christ. Jesus the Christ. That's who we're all about. I like the name. I think it's a very appropriate name for us. But you also ask, who defines Christians? Well, the people calling us Christians originally uh, were not interested in defining Christian. Right? They're not like trying to write out the essential doctrines of Christianity. They're just coming up with a nickname for a group of people that they see in their culture. And I think it's an appropriate nickname, and we claim it. Um, so who defines what, what isn't, isn't, isn't Christian? Well, primarily Christ, and then secondarily, but right up there, is the apostles. Jesus and the apostles define Christianity. If you have a Christianity that disagrees with Jesus... Yank Christian, right? If you have a Christianity that disagrees with the apostles, Jesus's official messengers of Christianity, then yank Christian. Jesus and the apostles define it. The New Testament records Jesus, his teachings, and the apostles, and has been uh, known in the church to be the best record, and historically is the best record. Even secular historians agree this is the best record for the actual origins and original thinking of Christians that exists in reality. So, so yeah, there you go. Um, Cheryl Cogan has a question. Often, she says, when I see Ephraim mentioned, it looks to me like God is referring to all of Israel. Have I misunderstood something? Why does he use this tribe? My reading today was uh, Jeremiah 31, 6, 18, and 20. Let's look briefly at that passage, 31, 6. I can tell you off the top of my head that, yeah, Ephraim is sometimes used to refer to a larger group than just the tribe of Ephraim, right? Um, That's definitely the case. So um, let's just read some of this, though. It would help to get a map and look at where the tribes were. But let's just read some of the verses you, you mentioned. There shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Okay, well, that's talking about an area. The hill country of Ephraim is not just a tribe, but the, but the place they are. Arise and let us go up to Zion as the Lord our God. Uh, to the Lord our God. Um, You also had verse 18 and 20. Here we have, I have heard Ephraim grieving. You've just disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. You are, uh, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. 
Now, it's, this is probably a good example for your question here because Israel is called God's son. Ephraim, is, is it Ephraim being used to talk about all of Israel here? Like Israel's just being called Ephraim? I, I don't know. Um, it's obviously a poetic type passage. Ephraim um, is his son in the sense that Israel is his son. I, I don't know. I, I guess, hmm. I haven't worked through this one. I don't want to just throw something out so I can look like I have an answer to your question, Cheryl. So um, Ephraim is definitely used as a region, clearly used as a region. And obviously there could be people there that aren't necessarily from Ephraim. Ephraim seems to also be used as one of the, in other passages that we didn't bring up, as a collective term for not all of Israel, perhaps. In some places, definitely um, a large portion of Israel. Just like Judah often represents just a, a massive group of people and um, eventually we're just calling them Jews, right? So that seems to represent all of them at some point as well. I think Ephraim still always has its identity, but there may be some times where it stands representative of a larger portion, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, sorry, I can't be of more help to you, Cheryl. <laughs> I like the kind of study you're doing. You're being smart about how you read the Bible and you're going, hmm, how is this word being used in context? And that's a great way to study the Bible. You're, you're fully engaged. All right, math professor Kyle Martin has a question. As a fellow YouTuber, do you get concerned about the ads your viewers see on your videos? Yeah, I do. Let me tell you guys something you may not know. Um, we don't control the ads you see. <laughs> so when we when we you know affirm to have ads on a video, we don't control the ads you see. Now, all the ad money that comes in from, from this YouTube channel goes to my ministry, not to my pocket. My paycheck does not go up um, because of the ad money that's there. So that I just I say that because I uh, I just want to be a witness to those who are non-believers and who are thinking that we're all just in this for money. Um, and I'm try I, I've made sacri financial sacrifices to try to show you that that's not the case. I don't don't do I don't do super chats. I, if I put it up there, I know a bunch of you would donate. I don't do that. I don't have a Patreon. Um, I don't have membership on my channel. I do run ads, minimal ads, and the reason for it and why I recommend other Christian YouTubers do it is because if we don't allow YouTube to make any money off our videos, we don't give them any incentive to keep us around. And so let's be smart about this. Like if, are we gonna like say, you can't earn any money from Christian content online, that's giving them no reason to keep Christian content online. So I think we should have at least some ad there, ads there. Uh, but I, but all of it goes for me, it all goes right to the ministry um, to pay for everything and not, not into my pocket. So, um, Am I concerned? Yes. I've blocked ads. You can block ads as a YouTuber from specific websites. It's really laborious though. You actually have to go, here's a website. Don't allow ads that link people to that website. So I've blocked from like LDS.org. I, I will not let them and several other LDS websites because they were advertising all over my videos. If I find about something really weird, I try to block it if I can. But your ads are different. Y'all click this video and maybe 50,000 people watch it, but maybe they saw hundreds of different ads. And it depends on your view history. Maybe you're looking for cars, so you're getting car ads online. Maybe you're looking. For, so I have very little control. And yeah, it concerns me. Um, I've explained my reasoning why I do it. And I and you all know that I'm not endorsing whoever happens to have an ad on the video. That's, in, in a sense, it's kind of like we're renting the space and making sure that we're a profitable part of the platform so that YouTube wants to keep us around. Because their bottom line is money. And I'm going to use, you know, Jesus said, use filthy mammon, right? Use it. For the Lord, use it. Uh, the unrighteous children of this generation are wiser in their use of money than, than basically the believers are, and I don't want to be unwise about that. 
but I also don't want to be compromised. So, All right, Graham Pearson has a question. I have trouble lifting my hands during worship songs, though commanded in Psalms. I can't get over the mental block that I'm trying to look good to people around me. Do I have a weak conscience or am I disobeying scripture? Okay, Graham, I don't think you're disobeying scripture. I know there's scripture that says like lift your hands, um, but I don't think it's meant to be like, here's a command of an exact behavior each person has to do. Okay, I don't I don't think that we should put that on indiv individuals like that. The I think the heart behind it is what's important and it's the idea of free expression of worship before God. But I do really encourage you and I'll tell you a story. I've told you guys this before. Maybe, Graham, you haven't heard it because, um, you know, I expect you to watch every video I ever make. I'm kidding. I don't. So here's the story. I was walking uh, in front of the church. It was Sunday. And I was on my way in and I saw trash in the parking lot. And I don't like when I see trash at the church. I think it makes the church look bad. And I, and, and I don't like that. And so I went to go pick up the trash. It's just a piece of trash. It's not a big deal. But here's my thought process. Oh, Oh no, what if someone sees me picking this up and they think I'm doing it for them to see me? Because then I will look bad. And then I thought, wait a minute. Here I am about to not pick up trash so as to avoid looking like I'm picking up trash to look like I'm picking up trash. And I, I just thought, I'm way too in my head. I'm asking questions I don't need to ask. Here's me, there's trash pick it up, right? And I laughed and I picked up the trash and I threw it away and I thought, this is so silly. Nobody thinks you're that holy, Mike, from picking up a piece of trash anyways. And if they do, their judgment is impaired. <laughs> and so um, let me say this, Graham. You're way more thoughtful about you lifting hands than anybody else around you. And you need to ignore them and you need to just focus upon God and not ask, am I doing this for people to see me? Are they going to think this or that about me? And say, I need to stop asking these questions. Don't consider the people seeing you you worship god in ways that honor and bless him and don't worry about those other things because the very mind that's focused on other people is the very thing that you want to try to avoid as you're worshiping so i hope that that gives you help um you're you know hopefully you feel free to lift your hands if, if, if you're in an environment where that's considered you know not a distraction then i i would encourage it i think it's a wonderful thing expressing your worship to God. God God gives us these abilities to worship examples them in Psalms. And I do think there's a value in physically worshiping the Lord, singing with your voice, lifting your hands, even dancing before the Lord in appropriate ways, y'all. And at the appropriate times, maybe when you're alone. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> All right. Mickey Foley 0105 says, what's your thoughts on veganism? My thoughts on veganism, um, okay, I'm going to give you quick thoughts on veganism, and I don't have all the answers here. I mean, I don't have all the answers on most things, but <clears throat> my quick thoughts are this. Um, first off, there's way too much hostility um, between vegans, vegetarians, and, and omnivores like myself, okay? Um, I think that we all need to chillax a little bit, and, you know, my, my sister's a vegan, and... I, I love joking with her about it. I like to joke with her about like what is even in your your food, you know, and I, I make pun of her and stuff. But I also pulled her aside. I was like, hey, sir, just, you know, I actually like vegan food. I've eaten vegan food and I think it tastes good, okay? A lot of the time. Not all, not when it's trying to pretend it like vegan brownies, like, ugh. But there's plenty of vegan food that's actually pretty good and I enjoy it. But I let her know like, hey, I'm just playing with you. Yeah, I'm just playing. I, I, there's no real tension here. 
So veganism. Uh, if you're a vegan, I actually legitimately respect that decision. And m many of the vegans are vegans now because they think there's unethical treatment towards animals. And the more I hear this case for unethical treatment, not that it was, not that it's always wrong for humans to eat or consume animal products, but the animals through mass farming are being particularly unethically treated. And I think they may have a real point there. And I respect that. And I want to think more about that. And there are some who <clears throat> they would, <clears throat> excuse me, if they knew that their uh, animals were being treated ethically in butchering and all that other stuff and, and raising them, then they wouldn't have a problem with eating. So I, I think that's a respectable thing. We should consider those things. But we also have to consider the cost of veganism on whether, if, if a large number of our society does it, um, what impact does that have globally? Are we going to increase poverty and in increase um, food poverty and, and actually cause people because you, you know, Every, just because plants are a renewable resource doesn't mean that it's that easy to grow enough plants for everyone to be vegan. And so I don't know the answers to those questions, and I think there's consequences there. But I, I just think we should have mutual respect. Romans 14 weighs in on this heavily, in my opinion. One person eats meat. They thank the Lord for it. The next person eats only vegetables. They thank the Lord for it. Don't judge each other about it. Accept each other. Bless each other. And let others have their own conscience before God on these issues. Romans 14, please read Romans 14. Here's your study for the night. Sit down and read Romans 14. If that doesn't apply to veganism, I don't know what does. Be gracious. Let people have their views. Um, and don't force your views on this particular issue on other people. Yeah, that's my opinion. Uh, number 18, Shane Hopkins says, Jesus promises to give us what we ask in his name, in his name slash his will, if we believe it. He also says, to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Can we really say that God keeps his promises when this doesn't always happen? Um, yeah, so Shane, I got to point you to the video I mentioned earlier. This is why I spent, I think, I think I paused my teaching for like three weeks so I could prepare this one big teaching I'm referring you to now, right? Like I was teaching every week and I paused for three so I could just do this and spend a lot of time on it. And I think it's a very important video, which is, uh, which is something about word faith. <laughs> Let me find the video. All right. It's come up twice. So I just got to find it. Um, and then I will, uh, share it with y'all. So, um, Here we go. Oh, look, it says I'm live on YouTube right now. Okay, here, I'm going to put the link in the live chat right now. This is my answer to your question. And uh, if you'll notice, I'm not offended by your question. I think your your question is, is, is dangerous <laughs> in all reality because your question is saying maybe God's like, you know, lying. And I think that that's a very dangerous, you're, 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 you're in danger when you entertain such thoughts before holy, righteous God. It's, it's much more reasonable to say there's things I'm just not understanding. I just shared the link. I'll share it again. I wrote, this is the video in the live chat. You guys can click it right there. That is um, my teaching on uh, the topic of, uh, just a second there. Okay, Kenneth Copeland. And the reason why I bring up Kenneth Copeland is because this guy is the guy who teaches you. You just have to make yourself believe it and then it'll happen. And if you just believe it, you know, you're sort of commanding God with your faith is kind of what you're doing. And um, that's how it comes off. Um, even though, they don't use those terms. Um, I respond to that. And I use examples from scripture and I do a really careful study through the topic. And we go through exactly the passage where Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, believing, you know, you've received it, you'll, you'll have it. My short answer for you right now is this. I think that believing is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And unless the Spirit is inspiring you in that moment, this thing you're asking, you're going to have. 
I don't think you can have that confidence. That's an important caveat. And I build my, my evidence for that with scripture point by point in that video that I just linked. I hope you'll check it out. Short answer is this. Yes. God's answer is yes. His yes is yes. But he didn't tell you he would do that thing. So you can't just believe he's going to do it. Right? The missing element is God telling you. In this situation, you're praying for the salvation of a friend. If God tells you, I am going to do that, then you can absolutely confidently believe that. If God doesn't tell you that, you can't just self-hypnotize <laughs> into believing it and then make it happen. Please, please, please check out that video. Um, I think it's very important. This is my cat. Yeah, there she is. She needs a haircut. Yes. We, we discovered after we got this cat. This particular cat needs haircuts. All right, question number 18. Um, 19, excuse me. Katie Campbell says, Hey, Mike, I've been struggling for years with self-harm and I'm looking for biblical advice. I'm Baptist and believe we go through hard times, but I'm just looking for advice. Uh, Katie, um, I don't... I, okay, I'm going to answer you. I'm going to try to give you some counsel here and I hope it helps. But it's so hard without knowing you, like... As a pastor, here's what I would want to do. I'd want to sit down with you and know you and know your heart and know your situations and hopefully know you for years. This is this is when pastors often can help you. They, they've known you for years, right? They've seen you through this up and the down and they know you and they get you. And then, they, then you say, hey, can you help me with this thing? And they're able to assist so much better because there's relationship there. I All I have is a brief couple sentences and I'm going to try to answer you. And so you're struggling with self-harm and looking for biblical advice. And I mean... Part of my biblical advice would be um, to tell you don't. <laughs> like, Katie, don't. Don't hurt yourself. Like, this is this is wrong. God doesn't want you to do that. I want you to ask yourself, you know, do you belong to you or do you belong to God? Part of the self-harm thing is about, it seems to me, is sometimes about taking control. Well, here's what I can control. If I can't control anything else, I'm going to control me and I'm going to control and I'm going to cause self-harm or cutting or whatever. But I think as a Christian, it's healthy when we realize that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your spirit, which belong to God. Right? That's what 1 Corinthians tells us. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And I want you to consider looking at Jesus on the cross, the cuts he had, right? The piercing he received, the blood he shed, and realize he did that so you wouldn't have to. This is part of what he's... When you don't cut, when you don't you know, self-harm, you are honoring Christ and how he purchased you. You are saying, I belong to you in honor of the, of the blood you shed for me, in honor of the love you have for me, because I love you, because I respect you, because I appreciate you, because I belong to you. I will not do these things to myself because I'm not my own. I am yours. That is a really healthy thing to be able to say and do. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I talked to one student who struggled with self-harm and cutting and um, she heard me talking and she came up afterwards and told me this was true. But she, I, I, I had said, you know, sometimes I worry that we make people cut. Yeah, I'm, I'm bringing up cutting specifically here uh, because that's what she was going through. I, I said, I worry that cutting is something that is we, we help propagate it because in our culture, we always talk about it. It's in the news. Your teachers talk about it. Your leaders talk about it. They're like, hey, guys, don't cut. Don't cut. And what I was wondering is not that it would go away because some people would still do it, but how many less people would there be cutting if it just wasn't so publicized, if we just didn't talk about it so much and give them ideas? She came to me afterwards and she told me that that was the case for her, 
that she goes, I never would have thought about it except I heard people talking about it and how they would use it to cope with being depressed. And so I tried it because they basically unintentionally recommended it as a coping mechanism. And I, I, I would you know, say, at least for some people listening, for some of you, not all of you, for sure, okay? Not all of you, but for some of you, you might be doing weird things because you heard someone tell you not to do it and you thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll try that. <laughs> and this is dangerous. Like we, we want to honor Christ with our lives. So Katie, um, the next thing I'd, I'd mention is um, self-harm is sometimes, a, a, again, it's a coping mechanism for, and it doesn't really work, but it's a coping mechanism for stresses in life. Finding biblical coping mechanisms are better. And one of them that I found helpful is going through this Philippians passage uh, really slowly. So um, let me take you guys, oops, typed that in the wrong spot. Um, Philippians 4, and I'll tell you, here's, a, here's a, I think, a biblical coping mechanism. It says here, um, verse 4, here's it on your screen. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. Okay, that's step one. Uh, and here's what I'm going to recommend when you're, when you're struggling, you think of, of all the issues you got going on, they're, they're weighing on you, that you walk through this like it's, like it's a program that you're going to obey in the moment. So you read verse 4, and you think, okay, what can I rejoice for? Lord, I rejoice, and, and there's not much sometimes at least not much that's on your mind that you can rejoice for, but you can rejoice. I rejoice that you love me, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. So I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Does that mean I feel happiness? No, I'm just going to like outwardly rejoice in the Lord. It's a behavior I'm going to put on. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Remind yourself the Lord is at hand. God is here. God is with me. Remind yourself of this. This is your going through your like, your, 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 your program, Philippians 4 program. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the next step would be make a list of the things that are bothering you and pray about each of those things. But you have to pray with thanksgiving. This will be hard because you're not feeling thankful. You don't have to feel it. You just have to do it. So I'm going to pray. I pray about this situation with my parents, the situation with my friends, my spouse, my kid, my school, my work, the world around me. But Lord, I thank you that you're sovereign in those things. I thank you that you're working in those things. I thank you that I even can appeal to you right now. So you pray about those things. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We often wonder, why isn't God's peace guarding me? But we're not doing the things that come before the peace. That's interesting. Then we have this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, and there's a list of a bunch of things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here is how I would, in my little moment of Christian um, encouraging myself in the Lord, I would work through this in Philippians 4. I would write down, or at least say out loud in prayer, either one, write it down or say it aloud in prayer, something that's true, right? But it has to be something positive that's true, not something negative. What's true? God loves me. What's true? The word of God is true. Find something that's true. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, hamburgers are delicious. Like find something that's true. Then whatever is honorable. Think of something honorable and just think about it. You know what's honorable? There was that guy who who gave his life to stop a school shooter recently, and he 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 charged them at risking his own life. What an honorable thing he did. Just think about it. Whatever is just. Think of something just. Something just and 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 appropriate and proper. Think of something that's pure. Find an actual example of something pure. Think about that. Just what love, love, you know, the marriage bed is pure. What, a, what an amazing thing that God has given us this, like married couples. Like how, 
amazing this is. The marriage bed is pure. Scripture says this is a blessing from God. Think about that. Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything, if there's any excellence, think of something excellent. And I actually walk through these things and think about these things. And this kind of, I don't want to say reprograms because that's probably the wrong word. It refocuses my mind on these things that are true, that are good, that are excellent, that are honorable, that are commendable, worthy of praise. Um, and that is maybe how you stop. You stop by praising God, by just his goodness and his worth. And you may find that some of the things that were leading you to self-harm aren't so powerful now. There's some encouragement. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope helps you and helps many others. Tim Z has a question, says, his last question for today, guys. He says, if we say that it's unreasonable to say that the universe had no beginning, why is it not also unreasonable to say that God had no beginning? Tim Z, I love this question. <laughs> so it's a good question. It gets you thinking. Um, but you might be surprised to know that this is a question that has been thought about and answered many, many times by Christian apologists, right? And and this is encouraging to me because I just want to let you know, like, there's been a lot of brain power put into these things and good brain power in many cases. And so here's the thought. If, you've heard, if you guys have heard of, say, the Kalam cosmological argument, this is one of, there's many cosmological arguments. You could do the argument from contingency. That's another one that I won't get into. But let's let's say the Kalam one, since that's probably the most popular one at the moment is the, the Kalam. And it's just, ignore the name. Okay, what it, it goes like this. Three little steps, and I'm going to give you the, the dumbed-down version for the sake of speed here. Um, uh, you know, if something has a beginning, then something must have caused it, right? The next step in the in argument is that the universe had a beginning. And you can use arguments about like the redshift in the galaxies uh, out there with the Hubble telescope and the theory of relativity and how it, how its numbers d dictate that the universe actually had a point of origin, had a beginning. So the universe had a beginning. And then the conclusion drives from those two principles, right? If everything had a beginning, that, that had a beginning had a cause, and the universe had a beginning, then the universe must have had a cause. Step three, that's the conclusion. The universe has a cause. And then you ask like, what could cause the universe? Okay, Th this is where you say, well, the universe is time, space, matter, and energy. So whatever caused the universe isn't time, space, matter, and energy. That's irrational to think something is self-caused. So if it came into existence, then it must have been through something timeless, something not bound by space, transcendent, something that is uh, able to create mass but isn't made of mass, something that's incredibly powerful in order to create all the energy that's in the universe, I mean, this sounds a lot like God. <laughs> so that's kind of how that argument goes. And the pushback is, well, if we say that the, it's unreasonable to say the universe had no beginning, why isn't it unreasonable to say God had no beginning? The reason why we can give evidence for the universe having a beginning, those same reasons don't apply to God. So the universe has this redshift, the theory of relativity, all these things point towards it having a beginning. Time, it's, it's in time. Time seems to have had a beginning. We don't seem to be existing in infinite time. And there's arguments against infinite, infinite, equidistant segments of time um, that are important. And I think all demonstrate the universe had a beginning. But when you try to transpose those arguments onto God, they don't fit. For God is not in time. So you can't use the argument about time. He was timeless. Okay. Uh, God doesn't have a, a galaxy with shifting redshift and the theory of relativity, these things are all applicable in the universe, but they don't apply to God. What I'm saying here, in case I've lost anybody, which I'm sure I have, <laughs> um, the reasons to think the universe had a beginning, if you take those same reasons and apply them to God, they don't apply. Let me give you an example uh, of a parallel thing. 
um, a baby has a father. Well, if a baby has to have a father, why doesn't my cup have a father? Well, this, because the same reasons why a baby has a father don't apply to a cup. Cups aren't living beings. Cups don't descend from DNA borrowed from parents. Cups don't reproduce genetically. Like, okay, all the reasons to think babies have to have fathers don't apply to cups. All the reasons to think the universe had a beginning don't apply to God. So we're being completely logically consistent here. The nature of God is such that God is without a beginning. And so that same principle, the same three points, don't apply to God, right? If, if something has a beginning, right? If, if the universe has a beginning, it has a cause. Well, God doesn't have a beginning. Therefore, God doesn't have a cause, right? That that'd be premise two would be God doesn't have a beginning. Therefore, conclusion, God doesn't have a cause. It's The logic's totally consistent. If you want to know more on this, I recommend you check out the work of um, William Lane Craig, who's a philosopher who spent many years working on the Kalam cosmological argument, answering objections. There's a little book you really might like, Tim Z, and it's called On Guard. Okay, On Guard is a book written by Dr. Craig that goes through some of these things, and I think you would find it a treasure. So I recommend that to you all. Um, I will be with you guys next Friday. That's the next video thing I've got planned. Nothing for a week. And the next Friday, I'll be with you for a live Q&A. But then the 24th, December 24th, that's my birthday, actually. So I'm not going to be doing anything on that day except, like, sleep in, drink coffee, and play video games. I don't know. Go somewhere with my wife. That's about it. And um, and then I'll, I'm not sure if I'll do anything on New Year's Eve. I'll announce something later on that. I'm kind of kicking around some ideas. So we'll see. Otherwise, thank you guys for joining me. I hope you found this helpful in helping you learn to think biblically about everything. And remember that um, the thinking part is only part. We have to live it out. Um, and for that, I say, go spend some time strengthening your relationship with God and your personal devotion of prayer, reading his word, worship, attending church, and fellowship with other believers. If we just keep it in thinking, then, you know, that's no bueno. All right, so, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll zoom out on my cat's back. Ha, ha, ha.